we are in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This is a very interesting, sad, um, honestly, the detail in this story is brutal. It's a brutal time for Jesus. It's a brutal time for Peter, you know, his, his disciple. Uh, and the text we have today is heavy. And yet there's an awful lot of life in it too. There's an awful lot of life. And I hope to kind of help draw that out. So here's what I'd like to do with this very long text. I want to break it into two parts. You've got part one, which is the, uh, the trial of Jesus, the first trial of Jesus. And I'll literally just going to read that through, explain it, dig deep in a verse or two. And then I just want to give you a lesson from part one of the text. Then we'll go to part two, which is Peter's denial. I'll read it, explain it, give a lesson. And then at the end, I just want to take those two lessons from part one, part two, put them together and apply it to our lives. So that's where we're going to go here in the next 30 minutes or so. Let me start by just reading the first half of our text, Mark 14, 53 through 65. They led Jesus away to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. Many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Now, as we see how this so-called trial played out, you need to know a couple of background details. Number one, this trial took front, or took place rather, in front of a Jewish audience, in front of a Jewish court, according to Jewish custom, according to Jewish law. The Romans had not yet gotten involved yet. Now they will get involved. There'll be another trial before the Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate. The way this worked was the Jews did not have the authority to execute people under Roman law. What they could do, however, was have a trial according to Jewish law and then bring the condemned before Pontius Pilate, before the Roman law, and ask for his execution. So this trial is certainly significant. But it's not the last trial that Jesus will have. Now, according to Jewish law, to condemn someone to death, you had to have two or more witnesses of the, the sin, the, the evil, death-deserving sin that they'd committed. And those witnesses had to, had to agree in every detail. 
Eyewitness testimony was very important in that culture. Even up to today, it's important. You know, less important with DNA evidence and other things we have today. But eyewitness testimony in that culture was very important, and it had to agree. It wasn't enough to have one person. It wasn't enough to have conflicting evidence. So these people start coming up, and they start throwing accusations against Jesus. Nothing's sticking because they don't agree. And the specific accusation kind of goes toward what he said about the temple. He said he's going to destroy the temple. Jesus said nothing of the sort. What he did say was he predicted the temple would be destroyed. Remember, who, who was it, um, those of you that, that know a little bit about the history, who was it that was ultimately going to destroy the temple? Which group of people would ultimately destroy the temple in AD 70? It was the Romans. It was the Roman army. It, it wasn't Jesus, right? This was 40 years after Jesus uh, was on the scene. But Jesus predicted this would happen, and they took that saying, and they said, hey, well, you know, he's, he's going he's gonna to be a terrorist. He's going to try to blow up the temple or, or some such nonsense. But, but the testimony doesn't agree. Now, the whole time these accusations are, are being thrown at Jesus, what is he saying? At this point, he's saying nothing. Right, he's silent. In, in fact, you might write in the margin, if it's not in your margin already, Isaiah 53, 7 is the prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling by being silent in this part of a trial. Isaiah 53, 7 talks about the Messiah will go and, and like a sheep before the slaughter. He will not open his mouth. And at this point in time, the trial should be done. Like it, it should be over, right? There's, there's no testimony that can stick. There's no agreement in the witnesses according to right Jewish law, they should let Jesus free. Who intervenes? The high priest. Isn't this interesting? And we know from other texts, the high priest was a man named Caiaphas, and we know Caiaphas had an agenda. He wanted Jesus dead. So rather than letting well enough alone, according to Jewish law, Caiaphas comes in the scene, and he begins to interrogate Jesus himself, and he asks him, you know, why aren't you saying anything? And then he asks him one particular question that turns the whole thing around. And the question is, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Now note what happens. Before, before Jesus answers that question, he's winning the trial in a sense, right? There's nothing that can stick against him. Caiaphas asks, are you the Christ? Jesus answers the question. After Jesus answers the question, the place goes berserk. And there's tearing of robes, there's slapping and hitting, there's spitting, and Jesus is condemned to death. What happened in the middle? Like, what did Jesus actually say that incited the whole crowd against him and condemned him to death? Well, this is what I want us to drill down into in some detail. Let's look at verse 62. We'll put it, put it, back, put it back on the screen. And Jesus said, this is an answer to the question, are you the Christ? I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that's not a, a real long response, but it's an explosive response. And I want to unpack why that is. So at the simplest level, Jesus just told the truth, right? He said, yes, I am the Christ. Now, Christ, Greek word for Hebrew Messiah. Right? Messiah was the Hebrew king that was going to come and free the Hebrew people. Should be good news, right? Messiah comes. This is a Jewish court, Jewish audience. I'm Messiah. There should be rejoicing. Not at all, not at all. Jesus is the not, not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. Now, how was Jesus, and I think he was doing this intentionally, how was Jesus sending a message that resulted in this riot? I think Jesus was doing this intentionally. He didn't have to open his mouth, and yet every word was carefully chosen. Well, first of all, uh, it's possible in his, his quick answer, I am, he was bringing their mind to Yahweh, right? The proper divine name of God that God had given the Israel people. I am Yahweh. I am that I am. 
It's possible. That's a veiled reference there. What we do know for sure, though, is the two Old Testament references that he pulls together in his answer is very persuasive, powerful, explosive. I want to explain. Psalm 110 is a reference to, you know, I will sit at the right hand of the Father. And then Daniel 7 is this reference to the Son of Man kind of coming with the clouds of heaven. Everyone in that audience would have known those two references. Jesus grabbed onto these messianic prophecies and claimed them for, the, for himself and then even went further to essentially claim deity in these references. Uh, Daniel 7, 13 through 14 is a fascinating one. You know, Daniel was a prophet. He had a vision. In his vision, he said, I saw one like a son of man. He came to the Father, and the Father gave him dominion over all the earth to judge, to rule. You see, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm actually the judge. You sit in judgment over me, but there's a time coming that you will see me, the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven. We'll talk about that detail in a minute. And I'm going to be judge over you, you see. You start to see why the, uh, the, the result was so explosive. Now, this little detail, the clouds of heaven, don't picture the white, you know, fluffy things, all right? That's not what Jesus is referring to. The clouds of heaven are always talking about the Shekinah glory of God. You know, this is the cloud of God's glory, God's presence, God's power that he led his people with. So Jesus is saying, I am literally the presence of God, the power of God coming, and there will be a day that I will rule and bring justice over you, yes, over the Romans, over all the whole earth. Wow. And so the place blows up, right? Jesus has given them exactly in their minds what they needed, what they wanted. The council members themselves become the witnesses, you know, forget about the temple thing. That was blasphemy. I heard it. You heard it. We're the witnesses. He should die. That's exactly what happens in this trial. I've, I've been thinking this week, what would have happened if Jesus had chosen to remain silent? Well, it's hard to tell, but what we do know, there would have been no witnesses. They had no, nothing could stick on him before that moment. Jesus opened his mouth on purpose. Jesus willingly submitted himself. And while doing it, here was this message. He says, listen, I'm the true judge, and yet I'm submitting myself to your judgment. And there will come a day that I will return and make all things right. Here's, here's the lesson of part one of our text. If I kind of you know, wrap this part up, put a bow on it a little bit. Jesus is the judge, the capital J judge, who was willingly judged. Jesus is the judge. And he was willingly judged. Think about this, guys. The moment God created mankind and gave them a sense of will, gave them the opportunity even, in a sense, to not choose him, he knew the day would come that he would willingly submit himself to the judgment of mankind and mankind would condemn him to death. Right? Do, you, do you see who's, who, who's on the, the, the judgment dock here? It's God, <laughs> The judge who should be sitting with the robe judging us is the one down below the court submitting himself to the judgment of the people. This is a fascinating reversal. We should be the ones under the accusation. We should be the ones having to answer the questions. We should be the ones condemned to death. And yet the judge willingly opens his mouth and submits himself to the judgment of the people. And as he does so, he reminds them who the true judge is and then he does not send the angels. He does not wipe them off. He opens his mouth. He proclaims his identity, and then he submits 
to the process that's going to come. Wow. Jesus is the judge who was willingly judged. And all the while, Peter's nearby. All right. And Mark, Mark's a brilliant writer. The, the more I've studied this book in this last year with you all, the more I've just grown a great respect and appreciation for the, the writing of Mark. Here's what Mark is doing. While, while Jesus is being judged, Peter's also being judged, right? In a sense. You're about to see that with Peter's denial. There's going to be some questions asked of Jesus. There's going to be some questions asked of Peter. There's a trial going on for Jesus. Down below, in a sense, there's another trial for Peter and Mark is strategically kind of putting these together. In Greek, this is a fascinating little detail, right? In, in Greek, Caiaphas' question, you know, are you the Christ, is, is literally, you are the Christ, implied question mark, right? That's literally how it reads. You are the Christ. Exact same verbatim words that Peter had uttered earlier in Mark when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. Same words. And Peter is about to deny that. The very same time that Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the Christ, Peter's saying, I don't know that man. I'm not, I'm not a follower of that man. That was greatest, Peter's greatest moment when he said those words. Now, this is his worst moment when those words are being spoken above him and he's denying it down below. Let's take a look at that, the second half of our story. We'll pick it up in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard... One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. That's number one. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But he denied it. That's number two. And after a while, a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. One other fascinating connection between part one and part two of this text that Mark's drawing our attention to. Notice at the end of part one, it leaves us with Jesus blindfolded, that the guards are hitting him and slapping him and saying, prophesy. What that probably is about is they're probably hitting him and then saying, prophesy, who hit you? Tell me, oh prophet, ha ha ha. You know, mocking him as a false prophet. Down below, the rooster crows, Peter realizes Jesus the true prophet prophesied exactly right what was going to happen. Now, Peter is left sort of in an emotional heap here. He began to weep. It's like he snaps out of it. Like he's been sleepwalking through this whole ordeal, denying Jesus Christ. And now he snaps out of it with that rooster crow and he weeps. He realizes his great failure. He's done the exact thing he promised Jesus he would never do. Literally a few hours earlier, he'd said, I will go to death before I would ever do this. And now he has done it. I'd like to highlight a little detail from the text that demonstrates that I believe Peter's failure was even worse than we think it was. Look at verse 71. We'll put that verse back on the screen if we could. Verse 71. 
But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. What's translated in English, curse and swear, two different Greek verbs. Now, when we hear curse and swear, for us, it's like some four-letter words come to mind, right? Now, there might have been some of that involved, but that's not exactly what the Greek's talking about when it says curse and swear. In fact, the, the, the first word that's translated uh, of cursing here, it has the idea that Peter is calling down curses on himself if he's lying. May I be cursed if I'm lying right now? Cursed by who? Cursed by God. May God curse me, Peter is saying, if I'm lying. Isn't that ironic? Now, the second verb that you have here that's, that's you know, translated swear, this is an interesting one. Scholars don't quite know what to do with this, but the best research that I've read, it indicates, listen, this is another verb of cursing, but this verb, rather than cursing himself, he's cursing someone. So there's only two possibilities. Number one, he might be cursing the people that are accusing him, or number two, he could be cursing Jesus. Now, why would Peter curse Jesus? Think about it. If you are being identified as a follower of Jesus and your life is on the line, if you are, right? The best way to disassociate yourself from that man is to curse your master because a true disciple would never curse his master. And th th there's some hints in the verb tense that actually... Peter was cursing Jesus. And so I would translate it if that's true. And I've, I've been convinced as I've read about this. Here's a rough translation of this verse. Peter said, I swear I don't know that man. Curse him. And may God curse me if I'm lying. What kind of disciple does that? Now, we've mentioned a number of times as we've gone through this gospel study of Mark, yeah, Peter's fingerprints are all over this gospel. In fact, one way to think about Mark is Mark is the eyewitness testimony of Peter the disciple. We're convinced, I mean, you know, Bible scholars, theologians, almost, you know, almost unanimously convinced that Peter was Mark's primary source for the eyewitness testimony. Why do we believe that? Let me just give you four short reasons, and I'll explain why I'm telling you all this. The first reason, Mark mentions Peter proportionately more than any other gospel. Now, that by, by and of itself is not enough, but it's an interesting uh, detail. The second reason, Peter's presence in Mark's narrative is all the way through. There is hardly a scene that Peter is not present, either individually or collectively as part of a group. Third, and this one, you know, kind of getting even more compelling as we go. There are minute little details all throughout Mark that only Peter would have known about. In our text this morning, we have him warming himself by the fire. And then we, we also know that, that he was below in the courtyard. That means the trial happened on a second floor somewhere. That's the only gospel that we get that little detail. Why do we get these details? Peter was there. Peter was a witness. Peter said this. Now, the fourth and most important reason we believe that Peter was the eyewitness that shared this information with Mark and Mark wrote it down is because of how bad Mark's gospel makes Peter look. <laughs> And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but think about this. Who was the leader of the church when Mark wrote his gospel? It wasn't Paul. It was Peter. Like Peter was the head guy of the early church, right? Jesus appointed him for that. And so while Mark's writing his gospel, he's saying these terrible, embarrassing details about the leader of the church. Why would you do that if Peter had not said those words himself, if Peter had not given you the details, if Peter had not said, yeah, I, I want you to write this down. I want this to, 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 to be captured for all time. 
Listen to the words of New Testament scholar Richard Baucom. No one in the early church other than Peter himself would have dared or wished to highlight the weakness and failure of the most revered and significant leader in the entire Christian movement with the candor Mark's narrative does. Therefore, the only possible source for the account of Peter's denial would be Peter himself. Why is that a big deal? I just spent five minutes, six minutes on that. Why is it so important that, that this is the detail we get here, which make Peter look absolutely miserable, come from Peter himself? Because it is a testimony that in later years, this man was healed so thoroughly, so completely, that he was comfortable enough in his own skin to say, let me tell you, church, about when I was at my worst. Let me tell you the day that I called down curses on myself if I was lying, and I was. Let me tell you about the day that I cursed my master. Here's the lesson from part two. Failure need never be final. Failure need never be final. The very fact that this text exists in the way that it exists is testimony that failure need never be final. Now, you know the rest of the story with Peter, right? He goes on to be the great leader. That's what we know him for more than for this moment. Why is that? Because he was healed. Um, you might want to jot down John 21, and if you go read that narrative sometime this week, this is when Jesus restores Peter, and you know, many of you know this story. He, Jesus provides breakfast, and he calls Peter to the side where no one else is there, no one else is listening, and you can just imagine the shame, the, the, the weight. Peter probably came and looked Jesus in the eye, and Jesus, you know, in, in my sanctified imagination, I, I have you know, Jesus' arm around Peter, and he, he looks at Peter, and he says, the same question three times, right? Not once, not twice, three times. You get, you, you get the connection. He says, Peter, do you love me? And he so graciously gives Peter a chance to say words that would be true to his heart at that point in time, not just what he had said before. And Peter, do you love me? And of course, three times Peter's able to answer him yes. And so what does Jesus then say? He says, you, you will lead my church and you will actually lay down your life for me. And that's exactly what happens. Peter has the beautiful opportunity because he's compelled and transformed and healed by grace. He has the beautiful opportunity not just to lead the church, but to die for his Savior. And he does that with joy. And, and tradition tells us he's crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy for the exact same death as his master. So I think there's a way to think about this, that Peter's failure actually became one of the reasons he was such an effective leader. He wasn't a great leader in spite of his failure. It was kind of because of his failure, because God took this dark, deepest, wounded place of his life and he transformed it. How could the one that was such a failure become such a great leader? How could the one who had cursed Jesus become the greatest witness for Jesus? It was because Jesus bore the curse that Peter called down on himself. Jesus bore it. It's because Jesus took Peter's failure in a sense and he wrapped grace all around it. He said, Peter, this failure is not going to define you. I died for that. Do you love me? 
Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Now, I want to take lesson one, lesson two, put them together, apply them to us as we finish out the message. Lesson number one and lesson number two together. Jesus was the judge who was willingly judged. Therefore, because of that, your failure need never be final. There's a connection between the two. Because Jesus is the judge, his opinion is the only one that matters. What God says about your failure, your belly flops, your sin, when you're at your worst, his opinion is the only one that matters. He's the capital J judge, and that capital J judge submitted himself to judgment to bear the weight of your failure, to bear the weight of your sin. Because he did that, your failure need never be final. Because he did that, your failure doesn't have to define you. Your sin, your addiction, your weakness, your greed, your anger, your bitterness, your brokenness, your hurt relationships, it need not define you. I want to draw our attention back to the parallels between these two sections of text. Jesus was put on trial. Peter was put on trial. Jesus was asked a question about his identity. Peter was asked a question about his identity. One told the truth and was condemned. One told a lie and went free. That's not just ironic, it's connected. Jesus didn't just suffer unjustly. That's completely true, but he also suffered substitutionally. At the most important level, Peter could be free and he would end up being free not just while Jesus was condemned, but because Jesus was condemned. This is the essence of the gospel, is it not? I have failed. You have failed. We're all Peters in a sense. And some of us, we, 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 we think our failure's huge. You know, some of us in our, our self-righteous pride thinks, well, my failure is real but may not be huge. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with deep failure. Uh, sometimes I pray, God, give me eyes to see just how, how deep my failure is so that, so that I can wrap the grace of Christ around it. It's, it's good and proper for you to feel the depth of your need for a Savior. And for some of you in the room, that's easy. Like you, you just sort of live with this memory of what you did or maybe not even a memory, just an ongoing consciousness of, of, of what you are struggling with right now. And it doesn't take a lot for you to feel really, really small, for you to feel the weight of guilt, for you to have this idea that, man, I'm kind of just showing up through this Christian life, but God's never actually really gonna make me fully alive and use me because I'm not worthy of it. That's where you live. I would just encourage you, let Jesus wrap his grace all around your failure. That worst thing you've ever done, that worst thought you've ever had, that, that addiction, that struggle, that thing that you can't get over, you can't keep kicking it, you keep doing it again and again, the thing you tell God, I'll never do that again until the next day, the next week, the next month, and here you are all over again. Listen, your failure need not be final. It need not be your identity 
How do you get past that? How do you get over it? How did Peter, how did he go from weeping to leading? How did he go from shame to boldness? He didn't pull himself up by his bootstraps. He was healed. He didn't come to Jesus on his knees and say, listen, I've sought you out because I need to talk to you about this. Jesus pulled him aside. He says, do you love me? He gave him an opportunity to speak again, to say something different. Jesus is giving you an opportunity. He's saying, listen, if you just let me wrap my grace around your not enough, around your struggle, around your brokenness, around your addiction, I will do something with it that is so beautiful you won't even recognize yourself on the other side. Isn't that what we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark? Think think about some of these stories that we've actually looked at. Think about the man that said, I was blind, but now I see. The man that said, I was a leper, but now I'm clean. The man that says, "I, I was a crooked tax collector, now I'm a philanthropist. How about the man that said, I was a curser, I was a denier of my master, and now I am a true disciple of him. What we must do, what our invitation to do is to allow Jesus to wrap his grace around our failure. And some of us, it's actually our pride that keeps us from doing that. Well, I'm not worthy of that. You're right. You're right. You're not. Nor was Peter. Nor am I. Nor is anyone in this church. Peter's story is not done in Mark chapter 14. In fact, it's just beginning because he actually finally came to realize his need for Savior. And he found a Savior. Some of us are so caught up in our own identity, either our own failure or our own success, that we can't actually imagine what it would be like to be comfortable in our own skin. To to sort of have a new identity, to be freed from that. Jesus died for us, men and women. That means there's no failure that defines you. There's no amount of righteousness on your own and success and accomplishment, spiritually or otherwise, that defines you. Your identity is not in that. You are in Christ. That beautiful phrase we see all throughout the New Testament. You are in Christ. Wrap yourself in your new identity. That's the call of the scripture. That is the Christian life. And then we live out of that identity and we obey and we witness and we share and we live generously and we serve and we give. But you dare not put all that stuff before your failure gets dealt with. And we got to keep coming back to the gospel. So I want to pray for us. And then after I pray, the band, or while I pray, the band's going to come out and then we're going to sing a song. We've just chosen a song that's about the faithfulness of God because we need to be reminded of that, particularly when we think about our failure. Father, we thank you for grace. Certainly, God, there's a lot in this text that is heavy. There's a lot in this text that's painful to read about and awkward and terrible. And yet its existence is a reminder that this is not the end of the story. So I pray for men and women. Uh, there, there are some, not everybody, but there's some in this room that are so weighed down with their guilt. They're so weighed down with their failure. They don't even feel worthy to look you in the eye. They haven't talked to you really for a long time. Uh, there are some that are just hardened over. It's like there's just a crust. And their, their heart's not actually open to you right now. And it act, really goes back to them just sort of making choices to kind of harden their heart over time. There, there are some, Father, that, that, that it's actually the, a, a pride of self-righteousness, not failure, that sort of is keeping them from really celebrating grace. And I pray for this body, Father, that this morning, 
we'd be able to celebrate grace, and then that grace would begin to transform us, and we would begin to become more alive through the good news of Jesus Christ, who bled for us and was raised back to life for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.